You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruzbe Parsi. I'm head of the Middle East and North Africa program here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And we are very happy to be able to organize this event in collaboration with our friends at Stockholm University Institute of Turkish Studies, represented here by Professor Paul Levin, who will be chairing and moderating today's discussion about Turkey and Syria. Paul, please. Thank you. Yes, uh, I'm delighted too to be to be here. Uh, this is uh, the uh, I don't know if it's the third or or a fourth event that we're doing uh, uh, together, something like that. Um, and uh, I'm hoping we have a, a good uh, panel uh, today on a very important and interesting topic. I'll start with an apology, and that's we had uh, also hoped to have a more uh, gender balanced panel. Uh, and also uh, a, a wonderful expert, Ambrin uh, Zaman, who was supposed to be here, but she unfortunately uh, took ill, so she was unable to, to join us. But um, uh, with that have, being said, we have a, a, a wonderful panel um, of experts, which I will introduce shortly. But let me just jump uh, right into to the, the subject matter at hand. Uh, on October 6th uh, of this year, Two gentlemen by the name of Donald Trump and uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan held a phone call, a phone call during which the American president uh, apparently told uh, the Turkish president that U.S. troops would withdraw from uh, northeastern Syria, where they had been stationed. This essentially de facto meant uh, that the American president gave the go-ahead for a Turkish operation in northeastern Syria, uh, an operation that Ankara had long planned for and had long pressed uh, for. And three days later, uh, on the 21st anniversary uh, of the, the expulsion of the PKK leader Abdullah Öcalan from Syria, Turkish-backed rebel forces, along with the Turkish army, uh, forces now gathering under the name Syrian National Army, uh, began its offensive uh, by attacking two towns near the border held by the Kurdish-led Syrian Defense Forces. Uh, and after a number of days of, of fighting, Turkey had uh, 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 taken an area around these two towns, Tel Abyad uh, in the west and Ras al Ain uh, to the east along the border, and cleared the area in between those two, two uh, towns. Uh, on the 17th of the same month, uh, Trump and Erdogan brokered a, a pause in the fighting. It was not a ceasefire, but it was a temple reprieve. Um, and at the end of this pause on October 22nd, Russia and Turkey uh, negotiated uh, an agreement, a 10-point uh, memorandum, uh, solidifying, confirming the status quo uh, for the moment and announcing joint Russian-Turkish patrols uh, along much of the border and uh, 10 kilometers in uh, into Syrian territory and the withdrawal of um, the uh, uh, YPG militia, the Kurdish-led uh, militia uh, from that territory. The incursion, uh, euphemistically uh, named Operation Peace Spring, uh, created a radically changed context for the population of northeastern Syria and has left more than 300,000 people displaced, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. So uh, to 
give us a, an understanding of what has happened and what is happening and uh, what may happen next and to understand the dynamics of this situation. We've invited two uh, very uh, distinguished and qualified experts to shed light on both the Kurdish and the Turkish uh, dimensions of this situation. For those of you who have attended other seminars that we've held organized here, you may have seen uh, Cengiz Chandar already. He is a distinguished visiting scholar at the at SUITS, the Stockholm University Institute for Turkish Studies, uh, and also a senior associate fellow here at UI. Cengiz Chandar is a frequent commentator on Turkey, uh, on the Kurdish issue, perhaps in particular, on, on the Middle East affairs in international newspapers, uh, on television, and in lectures at universities around the world. Uh, he's given lectures at places such as Harvard University and University of Oxford, to just name a few. He began his, began his career uh, in journalism as a journalist in 1976 for the newspaper Vatan. Uh, and has worked uh, for leading Turkish newspapers, uh, including Cumhuriyet, Hürriyet, Sabah, and until it was closed uh, not too long ago, also Radikal. Today, he regularly contributes articles to uh, Al Monitor, a widely respected online magazine that provides analysis on Turkey and the Middle East. And if you are interested in these uh, issues, I strongly recommend you to uh, look up Al Monitor. It's a wonderful resource, English language uh, resource, and also with publications in the languages on, of the region. Uh, and uh, am I allowed to out your book, Cengiz? Yes, uh, he's just finishing up or has finish, finished up uh, a book for, for uh, the Institute of Turkish Studies uh, on the uh, failed peace process with, between the PKK and the Turkish government, um, which will be out soon with the university press. Um, and we are also very uh, happy to have uh, uh, with us Selim Kuru. Uh, Selim Koru uh, may be familiar to, to those of you who, who read uh, uh, writings on Turkish affairs. He's an analyst at uh, the Economic Policy Research Foundation on, uh, on Turkey, TEPAV, a uh, Turkish prominent uh, centrist think tank, if you will. Uh, and there his research focuses on Turkish politics and foreign policy. Uh, he's also a Black Sea Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, an American uh, think tank. Before joining Tepav, he worked and uh, interned at various media organizations such as the Turkish Daily Sabah at Al Jazeera's Arabic and English offices in the United States and also the Hill newspaper in Washington, D.C. Uh, he holds a BA in history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an MA in International Relations and Economics from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, SICE. He's well known among uh, Turkey watchers for insightful articles on Turkey uh, in outlets such as uh, Foreign Policy magazine uh, and the New York Times, among others. So with that, I will leave the floor to the first speaker. And I'll throw out a question for you, uh, Cengiz. Uh, what is the future for the Syrian Kurds, for the uh, YPG, in the aftermath of this Turkish uh, operation, and in, in the aftermath also, also of the Turkey-Russia uh, joint agreement. Uh, will they now be forced to submit to Assad's rule? What's happening uh, for the Syrian Kurds? Um, just before that, let me, if you allow me, make a very minor correction of, on the substance and the name of the book, which should be out of print in two, three months' time. 
from a publishing house in the United States. I started as the failed peace processes, failed Kurdish peace processes, but it, uh, the scope of the book widened and the title is just making a kind of advertisement of the book, a book kind of a book launch. It is uh, Turkey's Mission Impossible, War and Peace with the Kurds. So it's um, beyond uh, the failed Kurdish peace processes. It involves many other things. Uh, coming back to the question, before getting into the Syria part of the talk that I primarily wish to focus, let me offer you a flashback in history, if I may, regarding the roots and the nature of the Kurdish history or the history of the Kurdish question. Without doing that, um, it will be more difficult to conceive the, the quite complex and complicated uh, situation that the region of the Middle East and also the international system face in Syria in the wake of uh, Turkish military move, as you mentioned, uh, into Syria on October uh, 9, 2019, about a month ago or so. So um, the Kurdish question actually emerged from the breakup of um, Ottoman Empire in the aftermath of the World War I. A century later, today, it remains one of the most intractable uh, uh, problems to arise with the demise of the Ottoman Empire and the post-war partition of uh, Ottoman lands. We see on the map uh, where the Kurds are, mainly, and Turkey uh, includes more than 50% of the Kurdish population all around the world. The ratio of the Kurdish population in Turkey is one-fourth of, almost one-fourth of Turkey's population, which is nowadays is eight, 80 million. So uh, one uh, uh, citizen of Turkey out of four is Kurdish by origin, and that makes half of the Kurds, even a bit more than half of the Kurds uh, all around the world. The, the ones in Iraq is uh, uh, nearly uh, more than uh, around 20% of Iraq, but uh, uh, much less in terms of the ratio to the uh, overall uh, Kurds in the world. And when it comes to Syria, which is the focus of our uh, meeting today. Uh, the Kurds in Syria, 5% of the overall Kurdish population uh, in the world, but 10% of the overall population of Syria. So the Kurds, uh, during the Ottoman times, except the ones in Iran, uh, uh, were subjects of one uh, sovereign uh, uh, state. And uh, after the World War I, uh, they were dispersed as subjects of three different entities, uh, which became Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Um, actually, the, the international community of the day, that day, uh, after the World War I, which means the Western world, of course, when we speak of international community, we, we mean mostly the Western world, through the partition uh, of the Ottoman lands, formalized the establishment of Kurdistan. Not only it divided the Kurds all around the world, but actually the, the Paris, Paris Peace Conference that came at the end of World War I uh, 
through a number of uh, treaties in which one of those was Sev Treaty of the year 1920, formalized uh, uh, the establishment of a, a state and country called Kurdistan. Uh, could we move to the Sev map? Hmm? Yeah. So the, this is according to Sev uh, Treaty of uh, 1920. As we see in the map, uh, the area drawn within uh, uh, red uh, uh, with the Kurdistan name on it, uh, just, just south of uh, where Armenia was designated to be an uh, independent carved part of the Ottoman Empire uh, with the partition. Uh, the, and uh, the south of Kurdistan was envisaged to become uh, one uh, single uh, uh, sovereign state uh, according to the uh, uh, stipulations of the treaty. Uh, the the, the, the Sevr Treaty, it's section three, called for a scheme of local autonomy. This is the wording of the treaty. A scheme of local autonomy for the predominantly Kurdish areas lying east of Euphrates, south of southern boundary of Armenia, as we see on the map, and north of frontier of Turkey with Syria and Mesopotamia, meaning today's Iraq. Article 64 of the same uh, treaty, Save Treaty, gave the Kurdish people the right to apply for independent statehood after just one year of autonomy in both Turkish Kurdistan and the part of Kurdistan, which has hitherto been included in the Mosul Vilayet, uh, what now it is to be called Iraqi Kurdistan. But Sevr has become the only treaty, which is the outcome of the Paris Peace Conference of 1999, not implemented. Turkish national struggle under uh, uh, Mustafa Kemal, which became later Atatürk, united Anatolia, by the other name Asia Minor, territorially, over which the Turkish nation state, as the main inheritor of the Ottoman state, was established. So Lausanne uh, Treaty uh, ultimately secured the whole of European part of Turkey, Thrace and Anatolia, including the areas allocated under the Treaty of Sev uh, to the Kurdish Autonomous Region as Turkish sovereign ter territory. Uh, uh, so Lausanne Treaty not only made uh, Sevr obsolete and null and void, but provided the legal foundational stone of the Turkish Republic. Lausanne buried the notion of the Kurdish independence, but Sevr remained a trauma for Turkey and Turks forever signifying partition dismemberment and uh, ultimate termination of their status of independence. With it came the negation, negation and denial of anything Kurdish, including self-rule, autonomy, federation. These notions are considered as an anathema and an introduction for the end. And therefore, from early 1920s on, the Kurdish question not only was born, but securitized uh, in Turkey. And Kurds revolted and suppressed. From 1925 on to 1937, there were three major uprisings. 
if you go and ask uh, the late uh, president of Turkey, Suleyman Demirel, he calls 29 Kurdish uprisings, but the major uprisings were mainly three from 1925 until 1937, which was followed by a new armed struggle initiated by the organization with the acronym PKK that started in the year 1984. And since a period of uh, nearly half a century, which is named the Silent Decades, there was nothing uh, around, but which led to the death of almost 40,000 uh, people, mostly Kurds, uh, in Turkey, which brought a very heavy economic burden over Turkey and sapped uh, most of Turkey's energy in diplomacy and politics. So uh, whenever Turkey uh, searched to democratize and liberalize in political sense, uh, the question hopes for a political settlement of the Kurdish pro problem increased. That was the case uh, during the decade roughly between the years 2006 and 2015. Um, all change uh, with the developments in Syria. Um, in 2011, when, as they called the direct translation of Arabic into English, events, they call in Arabic ahtas. When events started to happen as uh, the continuation or, uh, of the Arab Spring in those years, in 2011, when it uh, moved into Syria, uh, Syria uh, was engulfed in turbulence and Turkey, at the first stage in the year 2011, first pushed for Muslim Brotherhood, the Turkish government, uh, for a broader representation of uh, the basis of uh, the Syrian regime. Then after a while changed its policy and uh, it became a host for the Syrian opposition against the Assad regime in Syria. And from 2012 on until today, the focus of the Turkish position vis-a-vis -vis Syria uh, has become to prevent any Kurdish rule, uh, any Kurdish self-rule in, in Syria. Because in July 2012, the overstretched uh, uh, Syrian army withdrew from the predominantly Kurdish inhabited zones in the northeastern Syria. Can we move to the other map? So, where it is, where yeah, uh, again. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, if we see on the map here, uh, the Syrian regime withdrew from all the parts that we we would see on on this map as the northeastern part of Syria, leaving only some token presence in the city of Kamishli and around in the northeast. Uh, the rest of the area was the, where the Syrian administration left and the Syrian armed forces withdrew, was uh, replaced by the Kurdish administration uh, uh, with, the, with the armed elements of the a Kurdish force, which was affiliated to Turkish PKK under the name uh, PYD, which is... Uh, Syrian affiliate of the PKK, which meant the Syrian uh, 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 
Party of Unity, National Unity, which is a Kurdish party, and the armed forces was called uh, YPG, with, under the acronym of YPG. So the, for Turkey, a matter was perceived as a nightmare because a self-rule in the areas of Syria, adjacent to Turkish border, uh, aroused the fears of uh, 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 contagious effect on the territory of Syria, which was overwhelmingly Kurdish. And therefore, in the last uh, six months, which we used to hear in the Turkish election campaigns, in the national slogans, a, a question of survival. So the question of survival for the, the existing uh, Turkish regime and its nationalist partners meant that uh, there is a, a, th a perception threat emanating from the Kurdish rule from northeastern Syria uh, over Turkey, which will endanger uh, uh, the, the survival of the Turkish nation state in Turkey. Uh, uh, and therefore, uh, what in the Western uh, 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 rubric it transformed itself into Turkey's legitimate security concerns that are emanating from northeastern Syria. So what has happened? Uh, the end of the peace process in Turkey uh, concerning the Kurdish issue in the year 2015, uh, crackdown on anything Kurdish in Turkey from that time on. And uh, uh, in terms of the, the policy vis-a-vis -vis Syria, uh, first in the year 2016, Turkey moved in to Syria. Uh, uh, what we see in the map, from Jarablus to, to Albab and created a, a zone that will uh, prevent the continuity of the Kurdish zone all the way from the borders of Iraq until uh, the western borders of uh, uh, Syria with Turkey. Then in the year uh, 2018, Turkey stepped into Afrin, predominantly a Kurdish uh, uh, zone of uh, Syria. And, uh, uh, established its control, and lately, just a month uh, before, uh, which was mostly pronounced as the operation to the east of Euphrates, it stepped in uh, from the area, uh, as uh, Paul Levin mentioned, from Tel Abiyad, as you would see on the map, to Ras uh, So the, what we see in the map here is the area designated by the president of Turkey as Turkey's self-zone. So Turkey wanted to establish a Turkish control between the area from, uh, as you would see, from Jarablus all the way to the Iraqi border, which is uh, roughly 480 kilometers. And to the south, the, the uh, green dotted zone, which is 30, 32 kilometers from the frontier. Uh, within that zone, which is considered the, uh, 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 Turkey's safe zone, Turkey wants as, again, the president of Turkey mentioned in his UN General Assembly speech in September 24 this year, to resettle uh, uh, at least 2 million uh, Syrian refugees out of 3.6 or around 4 million 
who are uh, inhabiting uh, Turkey. So uh, be, just before to conclude, uh, I just want to bring into your attention that that area, uh, which is designated by Turkey's president as uh, the, the, the Turkish safe zone, uh, it's not an empty area. In, within that zone, uh, uh, which is roughly 480 kilometers from west to east and from the frontier to south, uh, 32 kilometers. That, that 32 kilometers is the main highway between Aleppo, which goes to uh, Mosul of Iraq. Uh, this is, I am completing. So uh, uh, that area, uh, there are uh, almost 850,000 people are living. Uh, of which 76% are Kurdish, uh, uh, 180,000 uh, Sunni Arabs, which is 21%, roughly 21% of the area, and there are 10,000 Turkmens and 10,000 Christians. So the, the area that Turkish military intervention has taken place between Tel Aviv and Rasaline is 120 kilometers wide, and... Uh, uh, and it's mainly the Arab-populated area of this safe zone. So the Turkish military intervention was not fulfilled uh, with the dimensions that uh, the president of Turkey had in mind because it was contained by the ceasefire, which went into effect by 16th of October uh, after the visit of American Vice President Mike Pence to Ankara. Then... Uh, with the agreement reached by, by uh, uh, Tayyip Erdogan and the Russian President Putin in Sochi uh, through a 10-point uh, 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 memorandum of understanding. So it is contained. But it, then we will come uh, maybe in the uh, second round or uh, during the Q&A period. It has become a very congested area, what we see. Uh, we'll follow it later uh, in a different map. In that area... There is Turkish presence in the middle for 120 kilometers. To the east and west of it, for 10 kilometers deep, Turkish-Russian joint patrols established. And uh, the, the rest of the area is still Kurdish. And the Syrian uh, regime could not yet uh, establish its sovereignty. Uh, and to the... Uh, uh, East of Kamishli, uh, as you would see on the map, uh, there is the oil uh, production areas of Syria, where still the American uh, military presence with the participation and cooperation of the Kurdish forces are still in effect. So it has become a very congested area and north situation in northeastern Syria after the Turkish military intervention has become even more complex and complicated, as with the Kurdish question. It is no more the Kurdish question of Turkey. The Kurdish question of Turkey and the Kurdish question of Syria are intertwined and became more complicated and complex as a regional issue. And I stop here. All right, thank you very much, Genghis Bey. Uh, Selim, uh, could you maybe give us an outline of, of the, the Turkish objectives in Syria? What did Turkey want to achieve? Uh, was there an evolution of these kind of uh, objectives when it came to the Syrian, Syrian uh, issue? And did they achieve these objectives uh, with its intervention? It's as you wish. You can choose, actually.
Oh, there's the map over here. I like that. Um, so I have just very brief remarks, maybe five to ten minutes, and then I'm always happy to take questions. Um, when, when I think of um, Turkey's approach to this war, I can really divide it into two main sections. The first was um, from 2011 roughly until 2016 when Turkey first uh, began its began Operation Euphrates Shield, which was its first incursion into Syria. And then 2016 on to now, we, we are in the second phase from a tur Turkish perspective of this war. So f we are to think back to 2011, uh, when uh, protests started in Syria, it was really a, a very different kind of environment. Did I do something or? No, okay. Because the map is useful. Um, please continue. Okay. You can continue talking. Yeah. Um, so if you think to 2011, Turkey was um, at the height of its international prestige. It was, I think it was still, was it uh, uh, um, a temporary member of the UN Security Council? I'm not sure. But it, it, had, it had a great deal of pull. Um, a lot of people were talking about the Turkish model in the Middle East because all these protests were starting to happen across the region. And Turkey was looked at as a, as a model country. Um, Egypt had had its, I believe it had had its first um, election, uh, and that had resulted in a government that was very sympathetic to Turkey. You know, the, the, the Cairo-Ankara uh, flight route was, was very busy these, those days. And um, there was a lot of optimism in Ankara about the future of this region and Turkey's role in the future of that region. And um, then Foreign Minister Davutoglu, then later uh, Prime Minister, was very optimistic about Turkey's, A, about the future of Syria, B, about Turkey's ability to change things within Syria once, once these protests started happening. And um, very early on, Turkey committed itself to essentially what we can call regime change in Syria. And uh, of course, there's an American dimension to this as well. Turkey didn't feel like it was alone, that it had a very powerful ally that it could rely on. Now, for various reasons that we can go into or, or not, um, the uh, Turkey's intentions in Syria proved to be extremely optimistic and actually unfeasible. The opposition in Syria that, that Turkey favored, the largely Islamist-oriented um, opposition that, that began forming across various parts of Syria, um, was very difficult to organize. Turkey was not, uh, for various reasons, Turkey was not successful in organizing these groups to uh, the, the logical end of, of overthrowing the Assad regime and uh, bringing about some sort of popular or populist 
government that would be favorable to Ankara. Um, by the late, by the mid 2010, so um, 2013 or 14, this was already becoming apparent. And um, the the Turkish American relationship was also, uh, you know, suffering from partly this reason. And uh, once the Islamic State really became to um, came to be a dominant force in this region, the Americans then decided to side with the PYD. Or, well, the, the, what's essentially the, the Syrian branch of the PKK. And the PKK, uh, as we've probably been told, and as some of you well may well know, is um, an insurgent group within Turkey that has waged the war against Turkey for almost 40 years. And this, this played into all sorts of existential concerns within Ankara that sort of built up over time. Um, and then for various reasons, um, well, essentially by, by 2015 or 16, it became very clear that Turkey was on the losing side of a proxy war, right? But it sort of persevered it endured this situation without major structural changes to its approach to Syria. Um, in 2016, the, the attempted coup in Turkey happened, which was a big, uh, very defining moment for uh, the government uh, of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And it, it looks like the government decided to take a much more a decisive approach to international relations in general, uh, but also the Syrian conflict. Um, there has there have been speculations about whether uh, elements within the military were opposing um, intervention in Syria or an incursion in Syria before this or not. But what we know is that the makeup of the military uh, changed dramatically with the purges that that began to what well, that had been happening but began to pick up pace after the the attempted coup and um, in 2016 Turkey did its first incursion into Syria the operation Euphrates shield and that to me started the the second phase of this conflict from a Turkish point of view which is um, Turkey really actively creating facts on the ground rather than trying to influence things by proxy. And Turkey uh, taking a, an active involvement in Syria and allowing that to reflect onto uh, the Turkish political scene. So now Turkey's in a position where um, it's sort of looking to intervene in these areas as, as much as it can create facts on the ground. And the way that has, um, that has taken shape is, for example, in, in 2015 and 16, a lot of us sort of going to the Syrian border and, and interviewing people and talking to Turkish officials would hear a lot of talk about the, the corridor. Um, by this, they meant that um, the, the PKK was, was creating a corridor that would reach the Mediterranean Sea, right? 
and this would in the future allow a, a sort of proto-Kurdish statelet to reach the Mediterranean Sea and become less dependent on Turkey. This, this was talked about quite a deal and um, one of the, one of the um, objectives of the Turkish government was to prevent this from happening. It, so in, in those kinds of objectives, um, the government has been successful, Ankara has been successful, uh, that sort of thing is no longer an issue to them. Um, more recently, people have been talking about, uh, quote, a terror state on Turkey's border. So a PKK statelet on Turkey's border. And the, the, the most recent incursion, Operation Peace Spring, was about that, about preventing that from happening. And um, the jury is still out whether or not that has taken place, whether or not uh, Turkey has been successful in preventing a, uh, a polity that is dominated by uh, the, the Abdullah Öcalan's ideology from uh, getting hold within, you know, on its border. The jury is still out whether Turkey has been able to achieve that. It looked like, until very recently, that it did. And then we can sort of, uh, if we're talking about Turkey's objectives and whether or not it had, has been able to achieve things, its objectives in Syria, we can sort of step back and think, okay, uh, Turkey was not able to achieve its initial objective. It then downgraded its objectives and those sometimes it has been able to achieve. There is sort of a third dimension to it, which is uh, Turkey's domestic scene. Um, and to the extent to which uh, the Erdogan government has been using the Syrian civil war to change the makeup, the political makeup and the character of the country. And uh, that is also an open question uh, whether or not Turkey, because, because if you are reading and, and listening to Turkish government outlets and people who sympathize with this government and think about where this government is going, they want Turkey to be a more quote, independent nation, that it is less dependent on its allies, on its traditional allies, and um, is able to engage with the world, also militarily, on its own. And the transformation that this government foresees entails that, basically. And uh, in that sense, Syria, future historians will probably say that Syria has been a useful training ground. Um, yeah, I think for now that's, that's all I've got to say and happy to take questions. Wonderful. I'm going to start off with a couple of questions to, to uh, the panelists and then uh, open up for questions from the audience also. If you have any questions, uh, think through what you want to write, jot down some notes and uh, uh, make sure to, to phrase them as, as questions and not as, as speeches, please. Um, and if you want to uh, write about what we talk about or, or uh, uh, comment on it on social media, uh, please do so. Use the hashtag UIEvent uh, and feel free to also tag the uh, Stockholm University Institute for Turkish Studies. Um, Jing, is a question uh, for, for you. Um, 
we have sort of a new situation now where the Assad regime plays a bigger role, of course, Russia also. Uh, if we go back in history a little bit like you did, uh, uh, before the expulsion of, of uh, the PKK leader, Abdul Öcalan from, from Syria, and before uh, then, um, the Assad regime, as far as I understand it, long uh, allowed uh, more or less the PKK to train and uh, operate uh, in northern Syria, and, and uh, they could conduct operations against Turkey from, from, from there. Uh, to some extent, the PKK was uh, a useful tool uh, that the Assad regime could, could wield, either by, by uh, letting it loose or reining it in, depending on, on relations with uh, Ankara. Uh, are we back to that kind of realpolitik? Politique uh, situation in which the YPG is a, a is a, a weapon now, uh, and PKK perhaps uh, in, in uh, Syria-Turkish relations. Yeah, this. Well, it's it's a very very essential question actually. Uh, uh, I think you, you implied the Adana agreement uh, uh, between Turkey and Syria. It's, a, it's not an agreement, it's not a treaty actually, it's a protocol. So in terms of international law, the, the, these kind of nuances are very, very important. Um, it's a protocol, kind of a security arrangement signed uh, uh, by uh, the, the military and security authorities of two countries uh, in 1998. Uh, which uh, now the Russians are referring to it all the time, uh, just to to to, uh, uh, to use it as a vehicle in order to bring about uh, a rapprochement between two of their clients, Turkey and the Damascus regime. The Adana Agreement stipulates that uh, the Syrian regime will not harbor any kind of quote-unquote, terroristic activity against Turkey, and Turkey will have the right to pursue, uh, to a certain extent, it is uh, 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 open to interpretation, whether it is, uh, it gives the right to Turkey to move militarily inside Syrian territory or not, uh, but it gives uh, a right to Turkey to pursue the terrorists within uh, uh, Syrian territory if the Syrian regime cannot fulfill its promises because of a variety of reasons, but it undertakes uh, the, the commitment uh, not to let any kind of terroristic or uh, separationist activity that emanates from its own borders against Turkey. So now, uh, whether we are back to 1998, if we look at this map, uh, and uh, the, uh, to get uh, to the gist of the question Paul Levin Post, I would say no, it's a totally different situation because as we see in the map, it's a very congested, as I said uh, in my earlier comments, a territory for everybody. So it's not Syria and Turkey per se now. It is a Syrian territory with Turkish military presence, with Russian military presence, with the presence in some points of the Syrian uh, government. And uh, in most of the place, uh, with the dark, dark color suggests in the map, uh, the Kurdish YPG uh, as armed elements uh, present. And to the east 
part of the map, when you see blue with brown, it is the American patrols with the Kurdish fighters. So, and the, 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 the round areas are the oil zones, which is under the control of the American military personnel and the Kurdish fighters. Uh, uh, red and yellow areas where there are Turkish-Russian joint patrols. And the, 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 the distance, if you look at Kamishli, to, to the east of it, where the American and Kurdish patrols are done, uh, to the west, where the uh, Turkish and Russian patrols are uh, being conducted, few kilometers. So there, there are overlapping patrols everywhere. And to the uh, further uh, west, if you see Kobani, uh, to its east, you will see again uh, red and yellow, which is Turkish-Russian patrols, joint patrols. But uh, although it is not shown on the, on the map, to the south and a bit west of it, there is Kurdish-Russian joint patrols also. Uh, so, uh, and there are also Syrian regime elements, the, the regime army in that area. So everybody is there. Syria, the, the Damascus government is there. Washington is there. With Pentagon, I mean, not with Trump, but Pentagon is there. Uh, Russian patrols, but not special forces are there, and the Kurdish fighters are there. And these yellow areas where Turkey stepped in are mostly Syrian National Army, as it is called. Which is, it's a combination of mostly uh, Islamist factions of the Syrian opposition. Uh, which is under the umbrella of Turkish Air Force and Turkish uh, armor and the artillery. But the foot soldiers uh, comprising in those yellow areas are Syrian National Army, those Syrian nationals who are brought there from other areas of Syria mostly uh, to fight against the Kurds. So the, uh, to best of my knowledge, which I was uh, in, in, in the vicinity of that area very, very recently, the YPG, as uh, Paul Levin asked me the question, did not evacuate as promised by the Russians. And according to the memorandum of understanding between Erdogan and Putin, they did not evacuate the whole area that they were supposed to evacuate to the south of the line. What happened to them? Because there, there were 70,000, 80,000 uh, YPG fighters with some Arabs, of course. They are called SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces. Not all of them are Kurdish, but most of them are Kurdish. The command structure is primarily Kurdish. Of course, they did not evaporate all of a sudden. 70, 80,000 people with arms and trained by Americans since uh, the last two, three years. What happened to them? They just changed the uniforms and they put on what they call Asaish, which is the, the local police and security force in the area. And the Syrian regime in Damascus, because they had evacuated the area in the year 2012, as I told earlier in the first part uh, of, of the conference, uh, administratively, they are not there. So the administration in that area is still done by STF. And Syria, Syrian regime in Damascus do not have the, does not have the, the, the ability to project its administration and armed elements to the area. Re 
They have armed representation in Kobani and in several places that they say we are here according to the agreement reached by the Kurds and so on. So in that sense, the situation is very, very different than what it was in 1998 with this Adana agreement after the, the, the uh, departure of Öcalan from the area, uh, which ultimately ended up in uh, his uh, life imprisonment uh, today in Turkey that he's serving for. So uh, to conclude, what we have in Syria now is a very fluid situation. We don't, I personally uh, do not know where it is going. And I'm sure if you speak with the leadership of the Kurds in the area or with the regime in Syria or with Mr. Putin in Kremlin or go and speak with Trump if he is the one or with the Congress leaders or the, the Secretary of Defense of the United States of America or go to Ankara, speak with Erdogan and ask what's the end game, end game in Syria where we are now and what it will become next month or after two months, three months. Nobody knows. It's a very fluid situation, evolving by the developments on the ground. So uh, it's a very uh, interesting Netflix uh, series to watch. I'm going to follow up with a, maybe a, a quick question to, to uh, Selim, uh, because you're, since you're based in, in Turkey. Here in Sweden, in Swedish media and so on, there was a lot of coverage of this, this uh, invasion. I'm guessing that the, the nature of the coverage differed significantly from Turkish media coverage. I mean, one of the things that got a lot of attention here in Sweden were uh, that there were uh, rather compelling evidence of war crimes being committed by these uh, Turkish-backed uh, forces, the uh, several incidents of killing unarmed hostages that were filmed by, by uh, the, the, the perpetrators themselves. Um, no, Turkish-backed uh, Syrian National uh, Army forces, exactly, um, and and so on. Even uh, the Secretary of Defense that you just mentioned, Genghis uh, uh, Mark Esper, said that there was sort of strong evidence, um, and there were similar kind of claims of looting and etc. Et on. Uh, uh, surrounding the the uh, operation in Afrin, also. So I'm I'm wondering how was this portrayed? Uh, how is this viewed in Turkey? Is there a debate about this? Was this covered in in uh, any media uh, at all? Um, so I think it's useful to distinguish between different media channels. We're talking about mainstream media in Turkey. We're talking largely uh, television channels. Newspapers aren't really read anymore, not all that much, but let's include those as well. Some still have fairly high circulation. Um, if we are talking about some of the uh, some of the things you described there about you know accusations of war crimes, those things will not be covered in in those mainstream channels. I have not seen anything of that sort. Um, I would suspect that if people if people uh, do cover those, who do try to cover those in, in mainstream channels like TV, especially, uh, there would be there'd be serious consequences to that. I think, though, that um, since you can't really stop that kind of signal, so if you are a person in Turkey who is interested in these sorts of things, um, you do sort of look at alternative media channels, uh, you 
look into social media, you look into um, online online news channels that are now proliferating across the country and, and doing quite well, you do see that sort of thing. So um, there there is a part of the population that doesn't see those kinds of things at all, and those that is the majority, but then there's a minority that does get exposed to these to these news. I should say that this isn't this doesn't sort of cut across uh, the the political divide that we always see. So it's not you know the the pro Erdogan people see this, the anti Erdogan people see that. That does play in. That does that 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 is a factor. But if you watch uh, anti government, so so opposition news channels, they will also not cover this sort of thing, and they will also uh, be meticulous about being very patriotic and uh, portraying these things in a very patriotic light. You mentioned the, the sort of domestic political scene uh, in Turkey as one of the, the background factors uh, in trying to understand the, the decision to intervene in, in, in northern Syria. Uh, I mean, the, the operation, and you're getting to some of these questions now, the, uh, this operation had rather broad support in, in the Turkish general uh, public. And I mean, one... Uh, one could view it as sort of a, uh, a, a brilliant political uh, move by by the president, in that the, the 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 main threat from the opposition came from the sort of informal alliance between the two big opposition parties, right? The the Kemalist Social Democratic Party, the CHP, uh, getting the support from uh, the HDP, the pro-Kurdish leftist uh, party. Did Erdogan, with this intervention, break up that alliance, more or less sort of forcing the CHP to uh, to to alienate themselves from, from the Kurds? I'm not sure it broke up the alliance. Now, this, this is a complicated thing to describe, and I'll try to do my best. It's that um, the, the opposition group, okay, in Turkey, roughly representing 50% of the population, is composed of um, different moving parts, and those parts don't always agree with each other. So the, the biggest part is the CHP, which is a traditional sort of Kemalist party. Uh, there's a small nationalist party uh, that is also there. And then um, you have the HDP, which is the Kurdish nationalist slash leftist, strong leftist party uh, that exists in Turkey, right? And um, one of the things that the Erdogan government uses to discredit the opposition is to say, look, you guys are uh, in, the same op in the same group as the HDP, which is sympathetic to the PKK, who, and, and these people are traitors to the nation. And uh, so you work with traitors, therefore you, by extension, are traitorous. Um, and that... In the last elections especially, that formed the backbone of the government's argument and its sort of assault on, on um, the opposition census. Now, once you have that kind of setup, right, you have um, an environment in which polit politicians and political parties are encouraged to um, compete in the race of nationalism, basically. 
Um, and if you sort of, if you try to get out of that race entirely, you are with the HDP, you find yourself there. Whereas if you try to compete in that race, um, you are, you see yourself in a competition with, with President Erdogan and it's very hard to beat him on nationalism, right? So when this sort of thing happens, it tests opposition parties in the sense that you are either uh, a second-rate nationalist or you are uh, a traitor, right? Now, if you're a second-rate nationalist, um, you're kind of a loser, for the lack of a better word. Uh, and if you're a traitor, well, that is just has very negative immoral connotations. So it's a, it's a very tricky position for these parties to be in. Uh, one exit from that dilemma could have been, okay, I'm, I'm just opting out entirely. I'm against sort of this operation or invasion or whatever you call it, but I'm not, also not a traitor, right? They, they could have pushed that argument they didn't even go there i i don't i'm not sure they even had that argument they just thought okay we're going to go along with this anyways so they were they elected the the position of second rate nationalism it's fine um, but that i think weakened them somewhat and uh you clearly see that in the in the in the public discourse, I think that it weakened them. And can you do that? But can I throw in a question to you also before you can answer answer both, maybe? Um, because when we announced this seminar, uh, I received an objection or several objections from from some uh, Turkish Twitter followers and others, which I commonly do when when I talk about these issues. And they, one of them angry, wrote angrily that we don't have a Kurdish problem in Turkey. We have a problem with the PKK, right? Uh, we don't mind Kurds, we only mind the PKK. What, you've been studying the Kurdish problem in Turkey uh, for, for decades. What's, uh, what's sort of your response to that? Well, a um, couple of days ago, um, uh, when I was in Erbil, uh, Iraqi Kurdish TV channel was interviewing me. He asked me, the, the, the anchor asked me the same question, saying that, well, this is what the Turkish official dumb speaks about. This is all about being against PKK, not against the Kurds. And, and uh, you know, the, the Iraqi Kurdish leadership are in good friendly relations, despite everything, uh, with, with Ankara, with Turkey. So Historically, said, thanks fine. to you in part? Uh, hmm? Historically, thanks to you in part? <laughs> yes, but... When, <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I responded saying that, good, uh, if it is uh, only against the PKK, not against the Kurds, why are all the elected mayors in the uh, Kurdish inhabited parts of Turkey are just uh, not only fired, but put into prison? Uh, and and uh, trustees from Ankara are appointed to replace them. Because we had municipal elections just uh, six months ago, and the names of all the nominees were presented to the higher electoral board, and they looked upon all the nominees, whether they are eligible to run. So all of a sudden, 
uh, I don't think that in the last six months that they proved to be PKK affiliates. Therefore, they have, they have to be put into prison and trustees from Ankara was appointed. Let us say the high electoral board was mistaken in, the, in its assessment. These are all bad guys related to PKK, so they should be fired and put into prison. Good. But then why do you uh, uh, remove all the signposts in the region which, which were bilingual, Turkish and Kurdish? If you are not against the Kurds, why are you removing the, it says uh, in Kurdish UI or in Turkish UI, the same signpost. So you just remove it and put the Turkish of it. Why? If you, you have nothing against the Kurds, why are you doing that? So it's, 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 it's a very banal argument which we used to hear since decades in Turkey. And if there are anybody who wants to, to, to buy this or to swallow this, uh, let it be, but it, it, it's not serious. It's not a serious argument. But just to add uh, one thing uh, to, to Selim, which was a very brilliant uh, input that uh, he presented, that uh, concerning this last operation, apart from the domestic uh, shrewd, political shrewdness of the President Erdogan, uh, there is a very important geopolitical strategic element in this. Uh, uh, operation. If you look at the map, uh, a certain part of north, northern and northeastern Syria is broken by Turkish military presence or Turkey plus its Syrian proxies presence in that area with this yellow color. If you go further west, we will see Jarablus Elbab pocket. And if you go further west, we will see Afrin, as we had seen uh, on the other maps. Therefore, the continuity of the, a Kurdish zone next to Turkish frontiers, as uh, Selim said earlier, that there was a perception in the Turkish mind of a corridor. He was polite enough not to say that terror corridor, but because the Turkish officials spoke about a terror corridor of it. Uh, not saying uh, Kurdish corridor, but terror corridor, because they are not against Kurds, but the PKK. So it was a terror corridor, uh, uh, which, was, which had to be prevented. And Erdogan, the president of Turkey, in this respect was very, very consistent, because since a couple of years, more than once, he underlined that what has happened in northern Iraq will not be allowed to happen in northern Syria. These were, these were the words he picked up. The, the situation that happened in northern Iraq, he didn't say KRG, Kurdistan Regional What happened in northern Iraq? The emergence of a federal uh, Kurdish unit as part of Iraq uh, under the name Kurd Kurdistan Regional Government, which the acronym is KRG. Everybody says so. So it's without uh, pronouncing the word Kurdistan or KRG, he said what happened in northern Iraq will not let to be happen in northern Syria, which is a Kurdish self-rule, whether it's federal, autonomous, or, or, or any sort of Kurdish rule had to be prevented. And it is prevented by this military operation at the east of Euphrates, 
because all this area which we would see on the map until October 9 uh, was under uh, Kurdish uh, self-rule. So not anymore. It, it, it's a security area. Although it is congested, although that uh, YPG is not totally disarmed or demilitarized, it is not the same area as it used to be until October 9. So in this case, uh, it's not only Erdogan. We have to take it as the, the vision of the Turkish state system. Since its inception in the uh, 1920s, it was committed not to let any sort of Kurdish self-rule uh, under whatever name or framework to appear, to emerge in Turkey or next to Turkey as a precedent for Turkey. Because that's, if I go back, uh, which I attach importance what why I said so and what, what I said in the beginning of this conference, more than 50% of the Kurds in this world are living in Turkey. So even if there would be a Kurdish federal zone in New Zealand, Turkey will be against it. That's for sure, because more than 50% of the Kurds are living in Turkey. And God forbid that it would happen next to Turkey's frontiers. It's such a long stretch of territory over northern Syria, and it is prevented. So in that sense, uh, uh, geopolitically and strategically, whatever the outcome of the Syrian imbroglio might uh, uh, present to us in the near future, uh, Turkey and uh, Erdogan uh, administration uh, scored a point, we have to admit it. Okay, so the end of the, the Rojava experiment. I uh, would like to experiment for the by time being. throwing, for the time being at least, uh, I'd like to experiment by uh, handing out microphones to the audience. Uh, and why don't we start with uh, Ragi Pei? Uh, I would like to ask both of you uh, during the uh, last 10 years, because of the uh, Syrian civil war, Iran, not only Russia, but Iran also became a regional power. Turkey tried, we can say, not so successful to be a regional power. What is the uh, Iran attitude after Turkish intervention to Syria? Because also there is a de facto existence of the military power of Iran in Syria also. And secondly, I would like to ask Genghis, you were just there, and uh, is there any effort in Iraqi Kurdistan regional? Uh, effort, uh, uh, fear, uh, because of this intervention for their future? Thank you. Okay, two great questions. And we have uh, Marianne Lanazza also here. I'm outing those of you who I know. Yes, isn't it a bit difficult to compare what happens in Syria with what happened in Iraq since the uh, League of Nations in 1920 gave a special status to the Iraqi Kurdistan with a language and culture which have been kept on. So it has a special history and no other place in the region has the same background to have special rights. And also, isn't it necessary to mention that, uh, at least earlier, lots of Kurds, Sunni Kurds in Turkey, were voting for AKP earlier 
as far as I have seen in the statistics. But the Alevi Kurds were not like the Alevi uh, Turks. So there is also the Alevi question and dimension of it. I would like to ask you about that. Okay, those Comment. are two, two uh, questionnaires, but three questions. So I think we'll, uh, uh, I'll leave it that. Iran as a regional partner after the Turkish uh, power player. Uh, uh, what about, uh, is there fear in KRG for, for uh, something similar to happen in Iraq? Uh, and what about the KRG special cultural rights accorded to, to, to them by the United Nations in the 1920s? And what about AKP supporting uh, Kurds? Genghis, you, did you want to? Um, about Iran, Silly. I think, uh, yeah, I think more and more people are saying are saying that Iran is becoming much more influential. I believe the United States military recently conducted a big study on uh, what changed uh, in the wake of its invasion of Iraq, and. The, one of the big conclusions was everybody lost except the Iranians, who've gained a lot of strength. And then there was this New York Times article very recently about how the Iranian, how Iranian influence sort of moves through Iraq. And um, these these types of things are very opaque, and it's very hard to determine um, what, what's really happening on the ground. But it does seem like Iran is much more influential in the region than it was 10 years ago um, or, or 10 years before then. In, in, in terms of Turkey, um, the way it sees Iran is also evolving. So Turkey is trying to be a much more informed and um, is, is trying to slowly get into the game that the Iranians are playing. Um, so there's a think tank, for example, now in, in Ankara that's just studying Iran. And uh, I get the impression that they do a fairly good job. Like they have several Farsi speakers and they, they um, try to study Iran independently of Western sources, which is one of the things that um, the, the Erdogan government really values, that you know, just, just look at it through Turkish eyes. It's, it, is a very important aspect of this. So, yeah, there is, there is that dimension, and, and it is felt very much in Ankara. Yeah, on, on, on and the by the way, just to add something, I mean, another, uh, there's also talk about this cor corridor leading out to the Mediterranean lot in the United States, and then it was talk about the Iranians having uh, a corridor and that, and that the American presence was supposed to uh, prevent. Yeah. Sorry. Um, on the Kurds, um, I will, I will defer to Genghis Chandar, but, um, I would just quickly add that there are a lot of Kurds still vote for the AK party. I mean, that has, re I mean, they are bleeding Kurdish votes. Yes. Since, uh, the alliance with the MHP, um, but that hasn't changed in a major way. Yeah. Well, whether there's a fear in KRG because what has happened in, in Syria nowadays, uh, yes and no. Uh, it's a bit um, weird uh, 
atmosferin KRG e, there is a public outrage what has happened in in, in uh, northern Syria uh, and uh, there was a widespread boycott of Turkish goods uh, it's all over uh, the KRG but the interesting thing the most of the goods that come from Turkey are uh, initiated by Kur uh, Turkish companies run by Kurds of Turkey so it hurts the Kurds of Turkey this kind of boycott uh, more than uh, anybody else. But there is uh, uh, the reflection of that outrage. However, the regime in, 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 in uh, KRG, the, the, it's kind of a Barzani leadership. The uh, president of uh, KRG, Nechirvan Barzani, is Barzani. And his cousin, uh, uh, Masrur Barzani, is the prime minister, whose father, and the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, former uh, uh, father-in-law and uncle. Simultaneously, is Masoud Barzani is the leader of the uh, Kurdistan Democratic Party, the, the main force in, in um, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. So the, they are, despite the very negative Turkish attitude, uh, on the, the independence referendum that took place in the year 2017, are very keen to accommodate their interests with Turkey. Uh, and uh, they are very allergic to Iranian influence to grow in the region. So the, the, the administration, and they're uh, in uh, acute competition and rivalry with the PKK or the PKK affiliated groups. So the administration in KRG is more or less uh, uh, trying to assuage if there is any kind of resentment or fear on, uh, of their public vis-a-vis -vis Turkey. But the public, it's more uh, kind of a resentment and uh, anger than fear that the same thing might happen to Turkey. And just um, the, uh, as you might uh, notice, American uh, Vice President Mike Pence was in Erbil. He went to Iraq all of a sudden, but not to Baghdad, Erbil, day before yesterday. So it means that uh, it's a message uh, and signal to the international community that Kurds are, un are under our protection against Iran, and uh, we don't let them to be uh, under the Russian sphere of influence. But whether the American promises are significant, meaningful, or counts, I don't know. It's, it's an, an, another issue. But at, le at least the Americans are with the Iraqi Kurds, and the Iraqi Kurds are uh, aware of it. Uh, so this, this is that part of the question. When it's uh, concerning Iran, well, um, Turkey and Iran are rivals, competitors, historically, by all means, but at the same time, they cooperate. As, uh, uh, as uh, <clears throat> Selim was uh, implying, there is another kind of uh, two axes competing for influence in the Sunni world. One is this axis, Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, countered by Turkey and Qatar, who are both are close to Iran, although a Shiite power. So there is a Sunni-Sunni uh, axis rivalry over the Middle East in which within in which Iran is accommodated 
through its interest with Turkey and, and, and in the Gulf. But more importantly, when it comes to the Kurdish issue, it, it, it's a bit complicated matter. Iran does not like to see Turkey and the United States, Turkey as a NATO force uh, in, in the northern part of Syria. It doesn't like to see Turkey as it presents itself now. However, it doesn't like to see a Kurdish self-rule also because of the Kurdish presence uh, with the with similar demands that they might have and they have in Syria, Iraq, or in Turkey, in Iran itself. So the, the, their interests, uh, it's, it's paradoxical. They don't like Turkish military presence as a NATO member country in northern Syria, but they like Turkey to, uh, to, to, to stop the Kurdish aspirations to be fulfilled, while Russia uh, is... Uh, uh, proposing some federal rights in the new Syrian constitution for the Kurds and Iran rejecting those rights. So it's, Iran is closer to Turkey in that sense when it comes to rewriting the Syrian uh, constitution in regard to Kur uh, Kurdish rights. Russia is closer to Kurds in that sense, but Russia is patrolling with uh, uh, the Turkish forces along the 10 a kilometer wide region and being pelted with rocks yes so uh, they do uh, okay i have uh, at least four more questions and we have a little less than 15 minutes left so i will uh, uh, collect two questions and they have to be quick questions and then two quick responses and then if we have time uh, two more questions uh aris Kader, did you want to ask a question i do yes <laughs> I've heard my voice is loud enough at times not to need one. But anyway, uh, my question is actually to both Jengis uh, and Salim. Uh, what I'm wondering about is uh, more directed at domestic politics in Turkey. And that uh, connects a bit to the what you were saying before about uh, Kurds voting for Akaba. Um, recently, Turkey had its the last election and it's not really planned for until 2023 i think is is the last next election though a lot of people have been advocating or agitating um both from the opposition and maybe some within akp have also hinted that they might be a more um a, a closer election coming soon um with the fact that the last election saw akp fractionalizing um and some votes seeping towards MHP. And with that, AKP also nationalizing, becoming more and more nationalistic in its rhetoric. Um, how much of its nationalism would you perceive to be genuine and irreversible? And how much of it has been tactical? Would there be any possibility that they would reach out? Erdogan, for example, not uh, wanting Bahçeli to get too much power or too much influence as kingmaker. How? What is the uh, possibility of them reversing this nationalism? Very good question. All right, excellent. If you could just hand the mic to the gentleman in front of you uh, with the blank. Uh, I just wanted to ask uh, two very short question, questions. First, why did Turkey want regime change from the beginning? That's very strange. To, uh, yeah, just before he had no intention of doing that, what I understand. 
And the second question is about uh, the, this uh, uh, Syrian National Army. Uh, if I understand it correctly, the basis of that is the rest of what is uh, before called al-Nusra, which is totally connected to al-Qaeda. That is also rather strange. Why did uh, do Turkey support will al-Qaeda affiliates? Okay, three good questions. Let's uh, start with uh, Selim, maybe, on the question of whether the AKP's nationalistic turn is well, pragmatic and temporary, or if it's if they've dug down. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question, and it's a theoretical question. Um, I like these questions because um, it it gives you a little bit of space on on what to think about. In terms of nationalism, I mean, you look at. People, people sometimes talk about the MHP having had a certain influence on the Ak Party and it having sort of made the Ak Party more nationalistic. Now, I've argued consistently that that is not the case, that the Ak Party was nationalistic on its own, and that the tradition of political Islam that Erdogan and his friends come from already had these themes within it. A lot of times what you have is um, there's several political movements in Turkey. Um, one strand, one family of movements, identifies itself as nationalist, whereas the others have different names, like leftist or Islamist or something. That doesn't mean that these, the, the, the MHP has a monopoly on nationalism, right? right. I think we all understand this. Um, Sometimes, sometimes it, it gets mixed up. So, the the Erdogan sort of tradition or tendency of politics already had a lot of nationalism mixed into it. In the early years of the AK Party, those tendencies were muted, right? And then later on, they uh, swelled up, especially in 2015 with the with the end of the peace process. Um, we we saw a much more sort of strong and assertive nationalism. That's also when the MHP broke off. What really happened afterwards is, well, for, for various reasons, Erdogan kind of separated from the AK Party and became a brand of his own. And then he had sub-brands. And two sub-brands are the AK Party and the MHP, right? Um, for some time, it looked like Bibib, another small nationalist party, could also be a sub-brand, but the MHP didn't want that, so they sort of uh, said, no, we don't, we don't want these guys in Erdogan, so like, okay, fine. Um, but he could have more sub-brands. It's like a company subsuming other companies and, and running them, but because these brands have um, a consumer base, Right. If I buy McDonald's, right, do I merge it into my restaurant chain, which is what Burger King or something? No, I run it. I keep running it as McDonald's because there's people who just want McDonald's. There's people who just want the MHP, so you keep running it as the MHP, right? And it works fairly well. So, but that doesn't really answer your question, which is 
is this nationalism genuine? I think in an ideal world, Erdogan and his government would scoot more towards uh, an Islamist side of things, ideal in, in his conception. They would like to be much more Islamist, but they understand that they defer that. Because if Erdogan is one thing, he's a gradualist. He can defer that and say, okay, the next generation will be able to do more of the holy world building, whatever, be able to be more Islamic uh, than I am. But he has to deal with political reality. The political reality of our age is nationalism. He understands that. He caters to it. Could we? Uh, okay, we have yeah. two more. Two more. I have to have a quick question. Can I just throw in a, a self-promotion? I actually have an article in Texas National Security Review that discusses precisely this question. Which, yeah, is is an excellent discussion. Uh, so we have two questions about the uh, is the jihadists uh, essentially in the uh, the uh, uh, Turkish backed rebel groups, and then why regime change? I totally agree with uh, Selim's description of uh, the nationalism of Erdogan and the AKP is inborn, not under the influence of MHP. But uh, just to respond to the question, also uh, there is an Islamist ideological component of the uh, AKP that we have to keep in mind, which brings us why they wanted regime change in the year 2011 in, in Syria. Um, so if you remember, uh, 2011 was the year that quote-unquote with this Arab, uh, American media uh, uh, term, Arab Spring, it wasn't spring after all consequences that it brought, but anyway, let's say for the sake of the, the, the simplicity of the, the issue, when the Arab Spring came up, it started in Tunisia, then in Egypt, in Libya, and with uh, Syria, it came to the gates of Turkey, the next door of Turkey. So in every one of them, these uh, countries, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood or its affiliates uh, replaced the, the, the existing uh, governments. And until then, Turkey had a policy of uh, uh, no problems uh, with the neighbors, zero problems with the neighbors. This, this was the, the, the rubric of the Turkish foreign policy formulated by then Foreign Minister Ahmed Davutoğlu. And all of a sudden, when Muslim Brotherhood started to replace the existing governments in Egypt, in Tunisia, and in, in, in Libya, and started to knock the doors of the regime in, 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 in Syria, Turkish government of Erdogan uh, uh, saw it's an opportunity to project its power and uh, its ideological position to the entire region. Some circles in the Western world interpreted as new Ottomanism. It, it has nothing to do with new Ottomanism. It has to project uh, Turkish power over the ideological basis, and and uh, what I'm I will be telling right now is not an analysis, but an information from horse's mouth, because I was with uh, foreign, then Foreign Minister Davutoglu in his first visit to Damascus, where he had a, a, a audience with Bashar Assad for over three hours, and there he proposed uh, Bashar to. Uh, enlarging the basis of his government, the base of his government, 
to include Muslim Brotherhood, which was outlawed at the time in, in, in Syria. So I heard later from the, the main advisor to, to Bashar Assad a year later, the same proposition had been done to Bashar by Tayyip Erdogan when they had met in Aleppo. So Turkey was, the Turkish government, or the Turkish regime, whatever you call it, was after a, a, a transformation of uh, uh, the countries of the, the uh, region by uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood government. So uh, when it didn't happen, given the developments in Syria, it thought that it could force a regime change. So the Turkish uh, the, the, the power projection could be achieved in Syria and elsewhere. So that's why uh, the regime changed because uh, zero problems with neighbors was no more there. It was impossible. So the Turkey has emerged as a revisionist power in the region after the Arab Spring. And so it was uh, favoring regime change in Syria. Uh, it's next door. When it comes to the uh, second part of the question of Turkey's uh, support of the Syrian National Army, it's not al-Nusra's uh, offspring. Uh, a group of Salafi groups uh, combined with the former Free Syrian Army, which is part of the Syrian interim government, which is based in Turkey, uh, comprise the Syrian National Army. So, Yes, the, 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 the major components of this SNA, Syrian National Army, or called as Turkey's Syrian proxies, which committed war crimes, allegedly, more than allegedly, I believe. But nevertheless, they are mostly Salafi elements, but not ISIS, not Al-Nusra. Some has... Some has uh, Al-Nusra affiliations. Even some has, some even has affiliations with uh, ISIS before, so because the uh, Salafi realm of uh, politics and religion and ideology is like Schengen borders. You can cross from one uh, to the other without uh, facing customs control and showing passports. One day you can be one of those organizations. The next day you can be in another Salafi organization. So in that sense, there were some affiliated elements formerly to Al-Nusra uh, or ISIS, but the Syrian National Army is beyond that. It's a bit more uh, colorful than uh, being just an offspring of Nusra or, or there were a few more questions in the in the audience, uh, but uh, we're out of time. So I think with that hopeful uh, example of a Schengen model for open borders uh, between <laughs> troops, we'll have to end this seminar. I thank you all for coming and attending the seminar. I hope you've signed up for, for uh, future seminars. And please join me in giving uh, the, the, our experts a, a round of applause as a thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.